little bit of a disclaimer before we start. I woke up wide awake at 2 p.m. 2 a.m. last night. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I mean, I feel pretty rested, but it's, I've, there's no way I can stay up and be fresh tomorrow. So I'm wrestling with it in my mind. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a little sleeping aid. And uh, so I, I, I went to the, my thing and I found the stuff and I took it. And then I just happened to look at my watch and it was 5 a.m. No wonder I felt pretty good. And I didn't realize that my clock had stopped that was right next to my bed that said it was 2 a.m. It, it, it lied to me. And so I took that pill and in the first service, it was a little bit of an out-of-body experience. This, this service, it's not as pervasive as that. Um, but I do, I, I, I don't know, I, I keep seeing this light. I'm not sure to move towards it or. So just bear that in mind and extend grace to your pastor. this morning. Romans chapter 12, this is Paul. He says, therefore, I urge you. You say, man, this is at the heart of the matter. This is important. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in, in the view of the fact God's at work, that he's actually doing something. He's actually longing to engage with the human life. In view of that, offer, come to him. Offer your bodies, which is in, means every part of you, your mind, your soul, your will, your emotions, and your physicality. Offer yourself as living sacrifices. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You're offering yourself to a God who's at work. You're offering yourself to a God who longs to perform things in his people. So we don't come to God through our prayer and through our gathering at church services or coming to scripture or whatever we do. We don't come to perform for God. We come to present our lives to a God who performs in us. And so he says, come. Do not conform any longer, he says, to the pattern of this world. There's patterns around us that sort of force their hand on us. That word conform there literally in Greek means to be squeezed into shape. So he's talking about being shaped in a certain way because of the world in which we live and the cultures in which we live and the families in which we live. There are pressures on us. He said, but instead of being conformed to that, he says, be transformed. In other words, you can be different. But the transformation involves your mind and be transformed by renewing your mind or thinking differently than how you're being pressured from outside sources to think. And as a result of that processing, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. I think that's provocative that, that Paul, at least at this point, is not undergirding the idea that whatever God's will is just automatically happens. There's some folks that think that. But somehow, with our willingness to present ourselves to a God who performs and, and, and a sort of pushback from the conforming pressure that's around us, and our minds start being changed that we become transformed in a way that we get to see. We get to test and approve God's will for our lives, which ends up being good and pleasing and perfect. We have something to do with what happens. Now, I want to say something about verse 2, about this idea of being 
conform to the pattern of this world. I also want to say something about verse 1, our spiritual act of worship. But let's first start with this verse 2, this notion of not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Paul is asking the Roman church to consider what they're being formed by. He's asking them to think about the framework by which they assess their lives or how they they make decisions or engage with work. He's asking them to to stop and, and assess how their views are, what their views are about relationship, about family, about sexuality, about economies, about money. What's forming you is what he's asking. And he seems to juxtapose what he calls the renewing of the mind, where you're thinking differently because of, as you read the rest of Paul's saying, he's saying, because we get God's message and we're with God's people and we're part of God's story, that somehow that forms us in one way. It renews us and transforms us. But you have this other, he juxtaposes that over against this other, what he calls pressures or, or these, these, these being conformed, which literally means being pressed into the culture, from the culture that surrounds us. And in Ephesians 6, Paul sort of elucidates those pressures. He says in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord. You're going to have to, you're gonna have to be intentional here and in his mighty power and you're going to have to put on some armor because pressure is going to get you if you don't. Put on the armor so that you can stand against these schemes of the devil. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I, th- I find this so interesting because I generally think my struggle is always against people. Life would be great if it weren't for people. <laughs> right? It's that boss or it's that kid that's acting this way right now or it's that neighbor, it's that whatever. It's always that person. And Paul is basically saying, no, look past the obvious. People aren't just being pulled on within them, their own selves. There are powers at work. And he says, your struggle is not against people, but against rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Of course, this includes Satan, includes the demonic, but includes more. There are forces at play in the world that influence us. Economic forces, political forces, social forces, cultural forces. And they're all vying for formation in our lives. And it is the recognition of these forces that Paul says in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Let the pressure of formation come from your relationship with the unseen one. Offer yourselves to God is what he's saying. And do not conform. Don't offer yourselves to pressures outside of God. I want to talk about two specific ways in which I think that we are not to be conformed to this world that we're being pressured to be conformed to this world. I mean, there are, there, this is obviously not a complete list because there are dozens and dozens of them, but these two in particular are things that God has been messing with me about. And since I'm talking to you and all I can do is just reflect my own life to you, I'm going to talk about me. <laughs> so, so the first thing I want to say about how we get pressured by outside thought is this issue of time. The claims of, of, of the Christian faith are different when it comes to time and how we see time than the claims of those outside the Christian faith. 
Christian time or time for the Christian is very specific thing. And what it is, is it's the claim is, is that time is linear and that time is purposeful and that time is created. The reason we have this moment and now this moment and now this moment is because God is creating those moments. If he would ever stop creating the moments, time would cease. Because time itself is an actually created issue. It's something God does, which means he was involved in the past. He's undergirding and creating the now out of a future he's imagining. And so a gentleman, or thinkers like Augustine describe time as something that's moving, Right? And it's moving in linear fashion. And it's after it moves to a point when it starts to move to the next moment, the old, this moment that was just here deconstructs, dissipates. And as we move into a new moment, it constructs. So it's constructing and deconstructing, constructing and deconstructing as time moves on. It's a real thing that God is all over. And in Christian time, the notion of it is there's this idea, if we, if, if we can use a term from Aristotle, this Aristotelian term called telos. That there's a telos to time. And what that means is that there's an end game. That God is on purpose. That he's taking us somewhere. That we're not just randomly spinning in a universe that's so huge. But there's actually a being who is imagining a future for us. It's caught in texts like Ephesians 1, where Paul says, God thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. See, now the image of those outside of these kinds of Christian thoughts, the way people look at time, some people just look at time as being a random thing or a human imagination or a human construct that's really nothing at all. Or if it is anything, it's just this circularity, right? So today goes through, then tomorrow will be today, and then another day, and then another day, and then another day, and then another week, and then a month, and then, and then a season, and another season, another season, then a year, and then another year. And another year. It's just a circular kind of thing that just happens. It's, it's, it's not linear. It's not intentional. It's not created, right? Because... On the view of God creating time, what that means is God is the one behind history. And it means that God is underneath the present moment and that God is creating what is to come. And the human role then is to enter that plan with intentionality to to work for what God is imagining for the future. Then he calls us into that, he said in that Ephesians text. He calls us into it. So in the moment of right now, the right now we cry, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it. So we're in this living moment where we're crying in the now, God, let what you're creating bring all that you imagine. And help us be part of that story. 
Contrary-wise, when a person thinks that time is just an idea or some kind of human construct, there's really no future. We're not pioneers working for a new future. We're just in the experiment of living. Hmm? This kind of forces us to break from things that time finds meaning when you think of Christian time. You know, vital kind of nourishing symbols of family start to pale when you just live in the moment and forget that the past and the now and the future matter. Things, things like a, a, a cultural tradition or religious life or, or values or just the life cycle in general where you're, where you're born and you mature and then it's that time to die. Those kinds of cycles begin to mean nothing. I mean, the, this mindset of just we're in time and it isn't really anything downplays things like marrying or having children. Or studying uh, and building a career. The focus shifts from participating and building a hopeful future to just what I can experience here and now. Right? Here and now is all that matters. It's like your life becomes a bow whose string is broken. You're here, but you can't shoot anything. You can't purposely cast anything. You can't commit to anything because you're broken. Somehow, uh, there's no real purpose. And in a way, you're paralyzed. Uh, This person isn't really, you wouldn't call them full of anxiety or joy or hope or despair. Really, the, the only thing that you taste when you're in a position like this is apathy and boredom. Creativity is blunted. See, what what kind of emotions do you default to? This is where God busted me. The last few months, I found myself getting a little apathetic. Finding myself getting just a little bit bored. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? And, And one of the things God began to speak to me is, you've forgotten where you are. You've forgotten this business of time that I'm in this with you. It's only when one believes that God came to us in the past and that God is living with us in the present and will come to us with his liberating power in the future that one can make sense of the gospel and one can make sense of the kingdom. Transformation presupposes a Christian view of time, but to be conformed to a life that rejects purposeful, Linear time, created time. It forces us to see time as just this long, random chain of events and incidents and accidents, which sort of force us into becoming these passive victims who drift from one moment to the next, anticipating only the presence of fate and chance. And when victims live like this, they tire of groping for direction and they quit asking for meaning and for purpose. And when this person looks into the future, it's just a big blur. It's this impenetrable cloud of empty space. Which just further underscores the idea that if there's anything worthwhile in this life, it has to be in the here. It has to be in the now. It has to be today. It has to be right now. What am I feeling right now? I don't feel very good right now. It's all about now. And if you look, you know, to try to answer questions like, am I valuable? 
You have to only answer that by what's happening right now. You know, how many friends do I have on Facebook? How many retweets am I getting? You know, am I being invited to hang with the cool people? Or how much money am I making? See, it all is about what's happening right now, right now, right now, what's happening right now. How do you view time? Are you a broken bow? Do you have a, a sense of direction, a sense of purpose? Or are you conformed to this world? Do you have hope and despair, joy and anxiety? Are those things in you because you're running at life? Or are you the person that just really is just at a place of apathy and boredom? I... Uh, Forget how time works sometimes, and I get busted, you know, because I try to validate my worth in the now. And I look for that, and I, this is one of the things God's been wrestling with me and my soul about. And, and when I, it's so easy to get dark, it's so easy to get negative, it's so easy to get apathetic. You know, where even the Bible, I come to the Bible and, you know, I read a text like, you know, uh, you know he, he loves us, he realizes that we are but dust which is God's saying that he doesn't expect us to be perfect, that he's for us. And I'll read a text like, you know, he knows that you're but dust. And then, but when I get this kind of weird way that I get sometimes, I read it as he knows that you are but dust. (laughs) I mean, even the Bible torments me. I have a reading of it that makes it all weird. This is why Paul exhorts us, I urge you, brothers, offer yourselves to God. Don't be conformed to what's around you. Don't buy into the values and the perceptions of what's around you. But be transformed because you're renewing your mind. There's another way to not be conformed, not just by time, but not be conformed. And that is by simply choosing, choosing, choosing is the operative word, to embrace the Christian story. The Bible says things like this, that Christians, that we're part of a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. And when you hear that, you've got to ask, is it true? Do do I want to buy into that story? Or he says, God says things like this, that he who began a good work in you is going to perform it until the day of Christ. Or that statements like this, that you and I are actually temples of the Holy Spirit, that God has chosen to reside in us. Is that true? Is there any possibility that that's true? And if it's true, how would that form how I go to work today? How I study? Uh, that, that God, the claim has chose the exact time and place in history that we would be born, that it's intentional. Or, or there's one verse that actually says in, in Psalm 139 that he has a book that he's written about all your potentiality and what he imagined you to be, that you're a dream of God come true. That's what the Bible says. That's what the story says. What we have to ask is, am I willing to dare to engage that story? Because there's lots of other stories out here that are not necessarily God's stories. And then, of course, here's the big story for us. We say it every time we gather. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And and we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We believe that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. 
that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was, that he was buried, and he descended to the dead. But death could not hold him. He, he, he rose again on the third day, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means right now he's alive, and right now he's watching us. And we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in this, this church that he has formed. We believe in the communion of saints, which means we're connected to everybody that's alive right now and everybody that's died before who have been people of faith that somehow we're connected to them. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And even though some of you are too young to care, some of us with knees that are giving us problems, we're really excited about this new body idea. And we believe in the life everlasting. These, these are aspects of the story that when we embrace them and come to him and surrender our minds, our hearts, our dreams, that they begin to restructure us. They begin to renew our mind and start causing transformation. Now understand, these are beliefs. These are not propositional statements of fact. A belief is something that carries this humility about it. Because on, on our end, we don't know exactly if we have it all right. We just know by text and by the, those that have gone before us that they've articulated it this way. But they didn't say we know. They said we believe in God the Father. We believe this is how it happened. And, and they, they didn't speak with absolute certitude, but with belief. Paul said it. We see through a glass... Darkly. Uh, in another place, he says, We know in part the historical church thinkers, they've always used the term, terms like the cloud of unknowing. That faith enters the cloud of unknowing. How many of you have ever seen on the Oklahoma highways, do not drive into smoke? Right? Because what they're saying, you're going to run into an accident. Just don't drive into smoke. Well, when we see in faith, when we see do not drive into smoke, pedal to the metal, we're going into the smoke! We have no clue what's going to happen, but we believe in God, the Father Almighty. We commit ourselves to this story without absolute certitude. See, see, don't let the impulse of the Enlightenment, which started late 17th century and 18th century, don't let that impulse throw you. That The impulse of the Enlightenment, which wasn't that long ago, you know, my wife's dad passed away uh, just a few years ago, and he was like 90 years old. That's if you stack about four of him, and you're at the alignment. Four. The alignment was just a few clicks away. And in the alignment, what happened was they looked for this, a new mode of knowledge, a new model for knowledge that was grounded in objectivity, grounded in certitude, grounded in rational thought. And they, they started saying the world can be a place of confidence, shameless confidence. And they claimed that there was no mystery, that if there was anything that seemed like mystery, it's because we hadn't reasoned it long enough. And if we just reason it long enough, we will figure it out. Now this kind of impulse, this cry of the enlightenment, was, was basically to say there's no need for insecurity, there's no need for self-doubt, there's no need for embarrassment. We can know what we know and we can know it well. This was the Enlightenment. This is the project of the Enlightenment. This kind of thinking spills into theological thought. 
spills into the Christian church. And what happened was theologians began to work to make, you know, work the beliefs, recategorize the beliefs, recast the beliefs. So they were no longer beliefs, but they were modes of certitude. And they began to, to take rational, logical approaches to faith so that we could kind of secure this tight system of certitude that, that, that was purported to be absolute. So that when we say something about God, we have no doubt that it's true. This is enlightenment thinking, not Christian thinking. Because to be a Christian means you have faith. And to have faith means you're not exactly sure, but you're kind of convinced inside because you've had this encounter with some being you can't try to describe, can't really describe what you haven't really seen. And it's a little sketchy, but you're okay with sketch. And you're throwing yourself into this story and it's a little crazy. In fact, faith really is a sign to those of you who are honest enough to admit that sometimes you doubt the story, the story that we embrace, of course you do. Doubt is the flip side of faith, or it wouldn't be faith. That's how it works. Faith is the risk that we take, betting against the doubt that's inherently present in it. It's not the same as, you know, right now, how hot is it out? 95, 90 degrees, whatever it is. It's supposed to get up to 99 have a great time at the party tonight. I'm going to Skype in. No, I'll be there. <laughs> but you can tell. You don't have to believe it. You can have faith in it. You can take a thermometer and you can verify it. This is the work of the Enlightenment. Let's only believe what we can verify. Well, they take it into faith and it basically said all of these propositions that everyone has said from the beginning of time of the Christian church church about belief. They've tried to make it all certitude, but it's not. It's we believe this. It's not we know it. We believe it. We trust that this is true up against the fact that we might not have it exactly right, but that's okay. We're trusting in a being that we don't exactly see. He is someone we see through the glass darkly. It's the cloud of unknowing, but we're cool with it. You see an example of this in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus meets this guy and it says that uh, the guy had asked him to heal his son and, and Jesus said, I can do that. And then he says, everything is possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief or my doubt. See, belief and unbelief, faith and doubt go together. The issue here is it's, it's not okay to doubt. It's critical to doubt. It's critical to faith. Just don't let doubt win. If you say, I have no doubt, I absolutely know for certain, all you are is being a child of the enlightenment, you're not a Christian. It's a, doubt is like stink. If you don't shower and bathe, you will stink. You're not a bad person. But if you don't shower, you will stink. This needs to be told to people. (laughs) But the good news is stink doesn't have to prevail. Stink is normal, doesn't have to prevail. Doubt is normal. It's part of it. It doesn't have to prevail. You can choose in the face of doubt because true faith has doubt wrapped up in it. It it has the risk of being wrong, permeating its DNA. That's why faith is humble. That's why there's a humility about it. 
Not this certitude that enters the culture wars and says, and just argues and yells at people because the word of God says it. That's not Christianity. You're just being a talk show person or something. Not a Christian. Somehow, faith chooses in spite of the risk to believe. But here's the deal. Contrary-wise, we live in a culture that doesn't want to buy into any stories. You live in a, we all live in this culture that everybody wants to kind of, you know, have fragmented beliefs. Not real any overarching story that we embrace. But just these, you know, instead of a fixed form of belief like the Christian story, ours is a culture that boasts more of this kind of fluid approach. Where, you know, in general culture, we're exposed to a litany of contrasting ideas and, and traditions and religious convictions and lifestyles. Plus, we get confused by our experiences. And we have all these different experiences. And then we have our parents. Can't figure them out. And then we've got Dr. Phil. What the heck? And then we've got our friends. And then we have the churches we've attended that have told us all kinds of things we're not sure are true. And then the Matrix movie. <laughs> What's going on? What's really going on? And then you've got your prejudices and your expectations and your hopes and your failures. And, 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 then, and then we're American. And then there's the Oprah shows. What do you do with Oprah? And it's easy to be iffy and sketchy when somebody says, what do you believe? Well, depends. Right? And so, uh, you know, additionally, we, we, we all witness the confusion that goes on all around us. I mean, you, you look over on this channel and you're watching this really elaborate and unbelievably expensive attempt of all of these doctors and nurses and people and money being spent to save the life of this one guy with this heart transplant. We're all rooting for him. We're all praying for him. And then you turn the channel or later in the same report, you hear about these thousands of people that are dying for lack of food and clean water and the powerlessness of our culture to do anything about it. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Or we travel to the moon. (laughs) Wow. A small and a giant step, right? And yet, We seem hopeless at stopping war on our own planet. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any one consistent idea or concept or thought system that can sort of decode all these contrasting pieces. So lots of people, they think that we just have to figure out things in real time based on the circumstances. So, So we're willing to embrace any idea that helps us process any given situation. And so we're a little fragmented contradictory in our thoughts, but that's okay because there's no superintending idea that can ever bring cohesiveness to the world. And, and so we, we, sort of, we sort of respond by living moment to moment. We basically are processing life on the spot with an openness to any input, which seems like we're such open people. And we think it's a good thing because we're so open But the problem is, is this person isn't willing to die for anything or to live for anything. And though this kind of person is super tolerant, he or she is just way too fragmented to stay committed to anything to the end. The Christian, on the other hand, we may not be committed to certitude, but the Christian embraces the idea that one can have an inner life connection with the reality of an unseen God and that on some level we're like mystics 
don't let that word throw you. A mystic is just a person who believes that they can have an unmediated connection with ultimate power. And on some level, we're mystics because we don't understand it all, but we know as we pedal to the metal and that a cloud of unknowing that we're going to encounter a being who we can't exactly describe, but we know he's there and we know he's good and we know he's engaged with us. And we have this kind of sense. We refuse to be passive victim. Instead, we passionately enter into our futurity with our futures, with God and with his people. And we know we're entering a story that doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't really have an end. But somehow we have this sense that we're part of it. Significantly part of it. So how are you doing with this? Have you embraced the Christian story, even with presence of doubt in yourself? Or are you being conformed to this world and just simply living from moment to moment with fragmented ideas that make you tolerant and you don't commit to any real story and you think you're being open and you're not? You're just part of a world that's fragmented and broken. Who are you? One more thought. I think this transition, this transformation that Paul iterates in our text, where we're no longer conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, it all really comes back to this issue of mysticism. This issue, and I'm using that in the positive sense of the word, not pejoratively, not in the weird part of it. The positive sense of it, where we're encountering the person of God and the mystery that's inherent in that. And it's in that first verse. Let me read it one more time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is what God's after. This is your spiritual act of worship. Interesting, because he's using sacrificial language and talking about it being a living sacrifice. If you've read texts, you know that sacrifices always die. They get cut, they get killed, and they die. But we're a sacrifice that doesn't die, but that doesn't mean we don't sacrifice. That somehow, and in the sacrificial system, they didn't just cut the thing and it bled a little bit. They cut the thing and it bled till all the blood came out. Then they'd cut open the body of the, of the animal and they'd pull out the liver and they'd pull out the kidneys and then they'd open up the kidneys and open up the inside. In other words, everything that wasn't seen was to be seen. Everything that was hidden was to come out. And this idea that Paul is saying, if you want to transform life, it isn't a simple matter. It's a scary matter. You've got to be willing to enter into this being in the cloud of unknowing, and you've got to be willing to say, okay, let's get it all out. Nobody's really seen my kidneys, including me, but let's get them out and cut them open. Let's get to this. And there's nothing scarier as facing yourself because all of us, most of us, want to blame everything around us and everyone around us for our ills. But when you dare to come to God and say, okay, let's get to this. Open my heart. I lay my life before you. Talk to me about whatever you want to talk to me. And here's the thing, is when God talks to you, I wish it was all wonderful, but it's wonderful and horrible. Horrible. So, God, coming to God is like driving past a car accident. You know, you're, you're, you're like horrified and just totally engaged. Right? It's like that. It's like a wreck and you're the one in it. 
And, and here's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah, God, well, God says to Jeremiah, he says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, listen, I'm sending you into these people, the, Jew, the Jewish people. And here's what I want you to do. Ministry. Here's the definition of my ministry through you to these people. I want you to tear down, uproot, destroy, and overthrow. And then build and plant. Wait, wait. He wants to tear down, uproot, destroy, overthrow, then build and plant. I'd much rather just build and plant here. I'd rather come to the Lord and say, Lord, here are my finances. They're already uprooted and destroyed. (laughs) But please build, plant. Make it so much better. And God says, okay, let's uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow what you think about money. Not cool. You, you bring God, you, you say to God, God, I've got this relationship with this child of mine and I'm trying to figure it out. Would you please uproot, tear down, overthrow, and destroy them? <laughs> so we can have some building and planting here. And God said, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. You. We're a first year girl in our marriage, you know. And, uh, and I couldn't figure out why she didn't think right. I mean, we're married. I'm the head of the house, right? At least those are my contexts. <laughs> this is in the 1800s. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and, I, and so I started praying about it. I am sure God's agreeing with me. Right. I mean, of course, he's a man. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't remember the verse that said, God is not a man that he should lie. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I'm talking to talking about it. I'm in a service talking to the Lord saying, Lord, so confident. Lord, you know, she wants me to treat her like royalty, but she's acting like a dog. And this is one of the, there's some moments where you know there's a God, you know, you kind of just, hello, because I heard this and I would have never expected this nor imagined this reaction. I heard in my heart, you're the dog. What? 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 And God, God began to mess with me. And I thought, there's someone else should be messed with here. This is how it plays, man. Your work, your school, your friends. You come to God with that. You know what he's going to do? Let's throw you on the altar here. Let's pull out that kidney. No one's ever saved my kidney. Well, let's get it out. And let's cut it open. And let's expose it. Two-thirds of God's ministry is destructive in our lives. And after he's done destroying and overthrowing and uprooting, tearing down, he can start to build and plant. And by the time he starts to build and plant, you are humbled and you are broken. And you're okay if it never changes. Great God, if it, I'm okay if it never changes. If my, my economies never change, I'm okay if, if the relationships always stay hard. By the time you go through the process, you don't even care if you get what you started the process to get. Because you're a broken person who's filled with hope. Because you know God's been in your past, he's in your now, and he's creating a future. And you know you're part of a story that's bigger than you, and it's no longer about here and now. Why don't you stand with me? So, where are you at? 
with your soul? Are you willing to be in on this thing? Because if you are, it's going to have a whole lot more suck than joy for a while. But joy cometh in, well, in a while. But really, what's cool is knowing God is at work. And if your soul can ever rest in that, we went to Gil and I were praying for a financial miracle. We were in school and we, I mean, we lived from paycheck to paycheck and we were underwater. And we had to trust for extra things all the time. And uh, this one particular time, we, it, it was only a few hundred dollars, but when you're in college, oh my gosh, I mean, a few hundred dollars is a lot of money now. It was a lot of money. And I remember we began to pray about it and something in my heart got excited because I, I bought into the idea of God's at work. And I remember thinking to myself, we, we got a miracle within a couple of weeks. We had this miracle happen. And I remember being disappointed. And it dawned on me, I was more excited about God working than I am about what he did. And I had this imagination. Imagine if God pulled up in a, you need a new bathroom, and God pulled up to your house in his God truck <laughs> and, and went into your bathroom, started ripping the bathroom out and started putting in a new bathroom. You know what you do? You say, hi, <laughs> hey, God's over here. God's over at my house. Yeah, come on. Just come check him out. God's here. And if God was where you wouldn't say, could you hurry up? Could, when can you get this done, God? Now you'd be so excited that God was there. You'd say, you want a cup of coffee? He'd say, no, I drink tea. <laughs> and you'd say, I thought you were Jehovah Java. The Lord that awakeneth thee. Say, no, I drink tea. And you know, when he finished the job and when he wrapped everything up and he looked at you and said, I love you, there's your new bathroom. You, you, you'd like it, but something in your heart would be so sad that he's walking out the door. And you'd be thinking, I wonder if he can come over something else. Not because you want it, but because you want him. This is Christianity. It's not God fixing everything for you. It's not God making the here and now just wonderful because you're so bored and apathetic that you entering a story. It's you entering time. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.